1: When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated and time-consuming fast. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, Vanta. Vanta's leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. Watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash cyber. Legitimate tools are abused as commodity initial access payloads. Hades ransomware is circulating in some new sectors. Criminal markets are sharing more features with legitimate markets, including advertising, recruiting, and even funding rounds. Cybercrime uses cryptocurrency, but the key to success may be location more than technology. Ben Yellen describes insurance companies collaborating on cyber breach data collection. Our guest is Michael Osborne from Moody's on a recent rash of cyber attacks hitting higher education. And Denmark's central bank is reported to have been a victim of the Solar Winds Compromise. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. ProofPoint has concluded that Cobalt Strike, the well-known legitimate penetration testing tool, is becoming increasingly popular as an initial access payload deployed by threat actors. It's become a commodity tool, more often used by cyber criminals than by state-run advanced persistent threats. Criminal activity using Cobalt Strike peaked in 2019 and 2020 and has fallen off somewhat since, but it remains a problem. Crediting research by Accenture, CyberScoop reports that the Hades ransomware gang is coming into sharper focus. It's recently been targeting consumer goods and services, insurance and manufacturing, and distribution industry sectors. It's also added Phoenix CryptoLocker to its arsenal. Unlike other ransomware groups, Hades does not appear to use an affiliate network. Attribution remains murky, with various researchers calling it a new group, and others linking Hades to either Russian or Chinese threat actors. Criminal markets continue to develop similarities with legitimate markets. LeFars has shared a new wrinkle in this trend with Fast Company. Cybercriminal groups are investing in promising new ransomware enterprises. In much the same way, venture capital firms invest in tech startups. In exchange for financial support, The criminal backers receive a cut of future profits. Calls for investment are typically made over secure chat apps like Telegram, and only investors with proven connections to the criminal underworld are accepted. So, if you're a prospective backer of a ransomware gang, not that you would be, of course, but just suppose, you'd have to show that you'd made your bones, as La Cosa Nostra says in the movies. In this case, you don't do that by whacking some jamoke but rather by showing some evidence that you've been involved in digital crime. Fast Company says that sending a token amount of cryptocurrency traceable to a ransomware incident or something similar to a certain address will usually suffice. Why would you bother either soliciting investment or deciding to invest? Aren't criminal operations like ransomware effectively self-funding? They are, for the most part, but they have their startup expenses too— and even hoods need to eat while they're waiting for the victims to pay up. Some of those startup costs may include hiring skilled coders who can build or modify the ransomware, they need infrastructure to process payment and distribute decryptors, and they need access to deep-pocketed targets. They could fish for that access themselves, but increasingly they find that it's easier to buy that from criminal initial access brokers who've already fished, stolen, or brute-forced, compromised systems. As far as investors are concerned, Lifar's CEO Andre Crail says it's a way of spreading your risk around. You can put all your money in one basket or you can diversify, he told Fast Company. Ransomware gangs are also advertising not only for affiliates, but for tech talent as well, bleeping computer reports. They do that in ways that will be familiar to people looking for customers or talent in legitimate markets. Show your wares and your capabilities in the best possible light. Everybody wants to join a winner, and that's the conventional wisdom in the underground, as much as it is up here. So the hoods see a small altcoin transaction as acceptable evidence that you're probably a fellow criminal and not a police officer or an agent provocateur, That confidence, of course, can't be absolute since the authorities can be wily. But the crook's instincts are probably more or less sound. And again, like Cobalt Strike, cryptocurrency is far from being inherently nefarious. It has plenty of legitimate uses. But cryptocurrency has undeniably acquired a bad reputation. FireEye's CEO Kevin Mandia told CNBC yesterday that, quote, It's an enabler that you can break in anonymously and be paid anonymously, and now you can commit crime from 10,000 miles away in a safe harbor, end quote. Not everyone agrees it's important to note. CNBC also quotes Katie Hahn, a partner at venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, an investor in crypto startups, who says it's a myth that Bitcoin is good for criminal activity. She says, quote, Crypto is a step-level function improvement above the existing financial system in terms of traceability. The fact is, when crypto is used for illicit activity, it leaves digital breadcrumbs. And I can tell you that firsthand, I used blockchain technology to actually solve crimes. End quote. Hahn had former experience as a prosecutor. So it seems not so much the altcoin as the criminal's base of operations that presents the problem— if the extortionists work with the tacit or explicit permission of a host government, it's difficult to bring them to book, which is what Mandia appeared to have in mind when he told NBC that governments had an important role to play in suppressing ransomware. He said, quote, We have to consider all the tools of diplomacy to back the desired outcome we want, which is, quite frankly, to make sure that there's risk imposed to those who take advantage of cyberspace and the anonymity it offers. End quote. Denmark's Central Bank was among the organizations exposed in the SolarWinds Compromise, Reuters reports, with a back door that stood open for some seven months. The bank told Reuters that there were no signs that the attack had any real consequences. One hopes not. And in fact, if those who came in through the SolarWinds backdoor were, in fact, as is widely believed, operators of Russia's SVR, they may be right. At least, the SVR probably wasn't directly interested in bank robbery, since collection of information as opposed to coin is more in their line. Had the unwelcome visitors been privateers, of course, things might well have been otherwise. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at Splunk.com/slash resilience. The FBI recently issued a warning to universities highlighting their vulnerability to cyber attacks. We often discuss how a ransomware attack, for example, can lead to financial and reputational damage. But what about an organization's credit rating? Michael Osborne is vice president and senior analyst for public finance at Moody's Investor's Service. And he joins us to share how the credit rating agencies are looking at an organization's cyber defenses.
0: You know, it's similar to warnings of the past, you know, both from the FBI, from, from maybe other agencies as well. Around the risk of you know bad actors and and, and wanting to uh, extract uh, information you know, from from higher education institutions and and this particular warning revolves around a, a certain type of of ransomware uh, that that affected I think I think it's universities in a certain number of states and some other other types of institutions but you know it's just another reminder that this type of attack is on the rise, that it is a real threat in higher education, and that it has the potential to affect credit quality, you know, if it were to ever rise to a, you know, a, a very serious level. And that's what we're concerned with at Moody's is, you know, its ultimate, uh, you know, impact on, on, on credit.
1: What are the types of, of data that is at risk here with universities? What's the spectrum of, of things that uh, could be affected?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot, and and you know some of the attacks we've seen highlight that. um, You know, you might have student record data, which might be less important than, say, uh, confidential research or or you know, financial information of of students, parents, uh, maybe the university itself. If a university runs a, a hospital, it, now you're talking about a different level of exposure of exposure and vulnerability with with patient data records and potentially you know life threatening information, and so so it really runs the full gamut. Um, and and we've seen attacks threaten most of that type of information uh, over the last several years. And and how are universities positioned to defend themselves? Well, I think the number one response seems to be, you know, cyber insurance. There's a there's a rise in in those types of policies. I think the universities that are sort of large, wealthier, and have, you know, sort of more, more resources at their disposal are implementing their own, you know, cyber defenses. And, you know, that could that could run you know, a number of different ways. But, but, you know, I think for most universities, they don't have access to those types of resources. So, so insurance seems to be, um, you know, one mitigant, at least trying to insulate them from financial harm, um, hard to insure against reputational harm. Um, You know, some universities, some, again, some of the sort of bigger universities, both public and private, are part of various consortiums where where they're you know working with their colleagues in in the, in the industry to um, you know thwart you know bad you know bad actors um, but you know it's it's um, you know they're throwing a lot at it that's for sure and in an environment where uh, the digital. Sort of infrastructure is, is more open than it has, ever has you know, with, with, with students learning you know, online at home and, and those networks being exposed more. Um, you know, it's becoming more important and it's consuming a larger part of university budgets.
1: That's Michael Osborne from Moody's Investors Service. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. But more important than that, he is my co-host over on the Caveat podcast, which if you have not yet checked out, what the heck are you waiting for? <laughs> We're begging a- <laughs> you, please listen to our
2: podcast. Well, I don't
1: want to sound desperate or anything, but it's a good show and and worthy of your time. <laughs> so, Ben, good to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, this uh, article from Insurance Journal caught my eye, uh, and it's uh, seven major cyber insurers Form company to coordinate cyber analysis and risk mitigation. Um, I think uh, the modern era of ransomware has really been a, a punch to the gut to a lot of these insurance companies. Can you unpack what's going on here?
2: Yeah, so obviously we've seen uh, an increase in cyber attacks, and it's not just the high-profile incidents. It's also just an increase of incidents generally, so it's costing insurance companies a lot more to cover cyber incidents. Mm -hmm. So because these claims are on the rise, a bunch of leading uh, insurers—they mentioned AIG, Access, Beasley, Chubb, the Hartford Liberty Mutual, and Travelers—have formed their own company, a separate company— to pool their data and expertise and take collective action to address this problem. So they've create, uh, created this entity called uh, CyberAcuView. Hmm. Um, and that new entity is going to compile data, enhance value, and service to policyholders. Hmm. That's what they say they're going to do. So what does that <laughs> right. actually could, mean? Could this
1: put them in the crosshairs for any you know, uh, 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 coordination that, that, that could attract regulators' attention? Probably not. Okay. I don't.
2: I. I would not think. It seems this is as some though they're sort of,
1: they're coming at this from a, from a position of good faith.
2: I, I think it is a position. Yeah. It's more like a consortium of experts trying to solve a problem that seems to be pretty unsolvable at okay. this point. Okay. All right. Um. I think the issue is that companies increasingly want cyber insurance, uh, but insurance premiums have gone up so high uh, that you know, because of these incidents that people can't afford the types of insurance policies that would insure them against ransomware attacks. Mm. Uh, and as a result, uh, companies feel that they're not in a position to offer cyber insurance because it's so expensive for them to, to try and cover. Yeah. And we already have a, a form of insurance like that, Dave.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because this strikes me or I I, I guess I have I have been wondering for a while is shy, is cyber insurance headed the same way that flood insurance has headed in that, uh, it is a type of insurance uh, for which a private organization cannot make money. It is too it's the payouts are too high relative to what you can possibly charge for the policies. So what you end up with is a government-backed insurance program that isn't particularly good. No, it's, I mean, in, in fact, bad would be a word I'd use to describe yeah, our flood insurance. Right. System. I mean, yeah. and and I I will tell you, um, you know, I I, I live in a, an area that uh, my community has been affected by this. We got remapped into a flood zone. Uh, and it was it was expensive. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. It's both expensive, but also bad coverage. I mean, you you pay a lot for insurance that really doesn't cover very much. No. And I wonder if we're headed that way with cyber insurance um, because of the big payouts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the situations are quite analogous where the likelihood of the risk has gotten significantly higher, and the damages, so the the consequences of that risk uh, has also gotten substantially higher that it is really impossible to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's why I think the formation of this consortium is potentially a good solution. They can get kind of the best experts in the room to come in, figure out what best practices would be, figure out, you know, by consulting law enforcement regulators how you can ameliorate the problem in the first place, stop the proliferation of these cyber attacks, uh, and then come up with innovative uh, risk solutions insurance practices uh, on the back end if something does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of the best that these companies can do because I think they're really at a loss. Uh, they, they found a dead end here. Yeah. Um, it is not profitable for them to cover this insurance, um, but also all of their clients are coming to them saying, we, we need uh, cyber insurance. Right. Um, right. So, uh, I mean, I think they're kind of just desperately searching for a solution here.
1: You know, we recently uh, just had President Biden meet with President Putin, and cyber was at the top of their list of things that they talked about. Could uh, could could the the companies come at this from that direction also, putting uh, putting pressure on politicians to bring this up uh, in a diplomatic way to say, "Look, we're you know, <laughs> you got an industry here that's dying because of uh, because of what's going on with these cyber attacks." You know, you, you got to put the the pressure on um, our adversaries overseas. Yeah, I mean, I think this could be a
2: big part of this newly formed or- organization. Is um, you know, they have a interest in policies that mitigate uh, cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. So they have you know the uh, the power and authority vested in them by the fact that they are seven large insurers allows them probably access to regulators and lawmakers Mm -hmm. to go in and say, we are trying to help on the back end to make sure that there is a profitable way to cover cyber incidents. Right. But we also need you to help us on the front end. Um, So what are you doing at the regulatory level? What are you doing in terms of international diplomacy? to prevent cyber attacks from happening in the first place. You're not going to prevent every ransomware attack through diplomacy uh, or through regulation. It's just not going to happen. Uh, cyber criminals are, are getting smarter. They are not all acting on behalf of, you know, uh, foreign governments. So it's not going to ameliorate the, the risk entirely, but it should be part of your broader effort to kind of redefine this entire field because I think... This this field of cyber insurance is having this reckoning that flood insurance had uh, perhaps a generation ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, an uh, in, in interesting move for sure. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire.